Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here, Flourishing Grace. If we've never met before, my name is Benger, um, one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace Church, and uh, glad to be here this morning. I have loved this series that we've been in since uh, the first part of this year and leading up to Good Friday, leading up to Easter. Um, we've been walking through one of the biographies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, um, commonly called the Gospels. We've been in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, I love the first few months and, and excited for what the next few weeks have for us. And before we dive in, let me ask you a quick question. What is God like? What's he like? Big question, right? Is, where do we even start with something like that? Some of your parents, or, or, or maybe you've uh, uh, been helping in our kids' ministry and you volunteer up there, at some point in time, you get asked like these, these big God questions or difficult life questions even. You don't even know where to start. You don't even know where to start, you know, biting out that apple. And same with this question, what is God like? Now, let me suggest to you, and I get to because I'm the one with the microphone. Let me suggest to you that one of the ways that you can know what somebody is like is by what delights them, what they celebrate, and what grieves them. Um, there are more than a handful of you in this room uh, during the fall months. On Sunday or on Monday, you are in a really good mood or you're in a really bad mood based on what happened on a football field for three hours the day before, right? And it's very clear what delights you. It's very clear what grieves you. Well, we're going to hear Jesus tell three stories today. And the focus of these stories is going to be on what delights God, and even a little bit at the end on what grieves him. And so if you want to jump in, we're going to be in chapter 15 in the Gospel of Luke. If you brought your Bible, you can open that up. Uh, if you don't have one, underneath your seat, there's a white Bible. We'll be on page 510 in that white Bible. Um, you can uh, take that home. If you don't have one at home, grab one of the pens next to you, put your name in it, and take it home. We want you to, to walk out the door with that, and that's what they're there for, and we would love for you to have that. Now, before we jump into these three stories, Luke, who is writing this, this account, says, okay, before I tell you what Jesus said in these three stories, there's something you really need to know about the setting, about why Jesus told these stories. And so in chapter 15, in verse 1, Luke fills us in. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, there's a few characters here that we need to meet. There's the Pharisees and the scribes, and if you're familiar with them, these are really religious leaders, uh, and especially kind of their focus is on the law. In the Old Testament, what they would call the Hebrew Bible, um, with just the law and the prophets often, there were 613 different laws, and they knew every one of them. And on top of that, if God drew a line and said, boy, there's a law right here and we're not allowed to cross over that line, they said, you know, we don't even want to get close to that line. So we're going to back up a little bit and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of go over you know, here and we're going to draw a line so that we stay away from that line. We're going to add more rules to it and so, so we don't get anywhere close to breaking God's laws. I mean, they were really fun at parties, right? The, the tax collectors and sinners, those aren't labels that Luke gives them, but these are labels that, that they had. This is what they were known as. 
They had engaged, at least the group that that are called sinners, many translations you'll see put that in quotes, these are the ones that have had the opportunity to sin in such a way that it became public. Or their lifestyle was, was such a lifestyle that they had broken enough laws or the certain kind of laws or the laws that the religious leaders didn't want them to kind of cross so that they were labeled with sinner. And they were outcasts. Now, the tax collectors, the religious leaders didn't give them that label just because they hated tax season and they had to write a big check to the IRS. Now, tax collectors had a job to collect taxes for the Roman government. The thing is, they bought this, this post to work for this enemy government. You see, the Romans had occupied the area that used to be known as Israel, kind of the the Judean countryside and and the cities in there. And what would happen is they they would hire people in those regions to collect taxes for them. And so these tax collectors were working for the enemy. And not only that, but the way that they made money is they would collect what they were supposed to, and anything they collected on top of that, they didn't have to pass on to the Roman government. They got to put in their own pockets. And they had the force of the Roman guard behind them. So basically, not only were they working for the enemy, but they were extorting money from their fellow Jews. They were certainly outcasts. They got their own category. And the thing is, they liked Jesus. And, and, and even before we dive in, this is, this is such an important thing for us, because when you walk through the Gospels and you read the accounts, people who were nothing like Jesus seem to really like Jesus. And these people who before had had kind of been cast off and and been told, man, God is done with you. God is through with you. There's no coming back for you. They drew near to Jesus. And Jesus received them. He welcomed them. And this ticked off the religious leaders. And they grumbled. And Jesus looks at this setting. It may have been uh, that that he was at dinner with with some of these people. and, And he sees kind of, you know, within earshot, but not close enough to get themselves dirty, the religious leaders who are grumbling. And he looks at all these people, and he makes a diagnosis. Now, the symptom was pretty clear, right? Jesus, man, they they don't like these people. These religious leaders are grumbling that they're even here and and hearing about God. But that's just the symptom. He, He looks at them, and he makes a diagnosis. And he says, I know what's going on here. They don't really know what God is like which if Jesus had said that out loud, I mean, it would have been super insulting because these were the cream of the crop when it comes to religious leaders. They had followed all the rules. They knew all the rules. They'd done all the learning. They had lived a lifestyle, at least in their minds, that made them right with God. These, these were the people who were supposed to be experts in God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't really know what God is like. And he sees the, the tax collectors and, and, and sinners and, and, and these people who have been outcast and told that God is through with them. He says, you don't know what God is like either. And so Jesus, in true Jesus style, tells three stories. And the reason why he tells three stories, the, the, the last one, known as the prodigal son, is one that even if you haven't spent much time in church, you might be familiar with. But the reason why Jesus says, i got to tell three stories here, is to drive home the point, because there's going to be a similar point in each of these stories that he drives home. We're going to find out what God celebrates, and what grieves him. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus tells this story. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, 
does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, I don't know about you, um, I drove down pretty early and it was kind of dark. I got a ride with my friend Pete, but, but even though it was dark, um, I don't think even if, if there was light out, even if we hadn't lost that hour of sleep, I don't think I would have seen any sheep, right? That's just not because sheep are bad or anything like that. We don't, we don't see them, right? You know, some parts of Utah, we might have them. But the people who were listening to this story, Jesus wanted them to be nodding there. This is a, simil- this is a, a very familiar scenario, right? Sheep get lost. Sheep are stupid. And one gets lost. The scenario, there's a there's hundred sheep here. One gets lost. And it's, it's the owner of the flock that goes and finds them. Right? We, we read these stories, and maybe if you're familiar, sometimes you ask, well, what about the other 99? Who's with them? This is a large enough operation that there were probably hired hands. But the thing is, the detail that wouldn't have been missed by Jesus' listeners, the ones hearing the story, is they would have said, yeah, the one who owns the flock, he's going to be the one who cares enough to go get the sheep that's lost. You wouldn't trust a hired hand to that because they're, they're going to kind of look around and, and, and not really be able to find it. Kind of like when you send your kids up to look for their shoe and it's right there in the middle of the room. They go up there, I don't know where the shoe is, mom. You know, you got to go and do it yourself because it's, it's, it's the shepherd, it's the owner of the flock that this sheep really matters to. And the way that Jesus tells this story, the whole thing leads up to the celebration. What we're all supposed to get and nod our heads out is, yeah, when you lose a sheep, and then you find the sheep, you celebrate. This would have been a similar scenario that they all would have been familiar with. Now, the thing is, they all would have been nervous because the religious people and the sinners and the tax collectors would have been nodding their head, and they would have been really nervous because it's the first time they've ever agreed on anything in their entire life. Jesus throws in this punchline that leaves them all silent. Verse 7, Just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What? I mean, can this really be true? Now, Jesus moves on, as we'll see, really, really quickly, but there had to be somebody, especially a religious leader, that wanted to raise his hand and say, oh, oh, hold on. All right, I get it when somebody comes home, but could it be this easy? I mean, it's the dumb sheep's fault, Right? He ran off. Is this really what God celebrated in the same way? So what you're saying is all that has to happen is God to find a lost sinner who repents and he celebrates? Can it really be that easy? Jesus moves on. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, stakes are a little bit higher, different scenario, different details, different character, same point. If she loses one coin, does, not, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her, lost, her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now, the ten coins would have been probably this family's life savings. And so for her to have lost one of these coins was a big deal. And so she spends resources. She lights a lamp, even though she, she may not have usually wanted to spend that oil. It was very valuable, very expensive, but she's got to find this coin. And so she sweeps and she moves the couch and looks behind the entertainment center and, and looks all over. And finally, when she finds it, she celebrates. And she calls her friends together. and says, hey, remember when I was really annoyed about that coin and I came by and I was embarrassed and, and thought maybe I left it? I found it. She celebrates. And then Jesus throws out the same kind of punchline. 
Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Is this really true? And we're going to get to the third story in a minute, but think about the thread that goes through these two stories. Something is lost of value. Somebody who really values that lost thing spends resources and time and effort in finding it, and when they find it, they celebrate. And Jesus says in the same way, God celebrates in heaven when somebody who is far from him comes home. Now, some of you are really astute, and, 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 and I know that's true because you came on time today, or maybe you meant to come to the 915, you forgot about the time change, but we won't tell anybody about that. But I know you're really smart, and you're really thinking about this. Is it, Benjamin, it doesn't really say that God celebrates. Hmm? Well, the picture that Jesus is painting is that it's not just God up there celebrating, saying, man, I'm really happy about it. Isn't that really great? No, God is celebrating so much that all of heaven is celebrating. And because all the heavenly beings are in line with what God wants and his will, when he celebrates, they can't help but celebrate. I mean, this is a party. Reminds me about a little over 10 years ago, um, the Colorado Rockies, at the end of the 2007 baseball season, were tied with the San Diego Padres for the last playoff spot. Yeah, this is really important. You got this. And so one extra game had to be played. And it was going to be held in Colorado. I was living in Denver at the time. My brother and I, we had season tickets, so we got to go to this game. And it's a tense game back and forth. At the end of nine innings, it's tied. Right? The loser goes home, winner goes on. And so the game goes into extra innings, and then the top of the 13th inning, San Diego goes ahead by two runs. Things are not looking good for the good guys, because San Diego also has one of the best closers, one of the best pitchers who's, who's good at closing out a game and getting the last three batters out in all of baseball. So the Rockies come up, and they score two runs, and it is tied up, and it is tense. And, and, and then there's one out, and Matt Holliday is on third base, and Jamie Carroll is batting. And Jamie Carroll hits a line drive to right field, and the right fielder catches the ball, and Matt Holliday is able to tag up at that point from third base and head home. And so he sprints home to home plate. The throw goes home. There's a tag. There's a sweep. And the umpire says, safe. Man, the whole place just erupted. My brother and I, we just started jumping up and out. We're hugging each other. I mean, I'm not a hugger, but man, when the Rockies go to the playoffs, I'm a hugger. And there's like perfect strangers. We don't, we don't even talk to each other all game, right? But we're all of a sudden hugging each other. Somebody knocks my glasses off of my face. I mean, it is just crazy. We didn't want to leave the stadium. And when we finally did, like we're going out to the parking lot with everybody else and getting into our car, we're high-fiving perfect strangers. I mean, it is a party. That's the kind of scene that Jesus is describing. Then he tells a third story. Now remember, something's lost of value. Something of value is found. There's a celebration. Verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The stakes are higher. 100 sheep, 10 coins, two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with even the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, sometimes in, in stories, Jesus pushes the details because no earthly father that any of them would ever know would ever do anything like this. The younger son says, Father, I know I'm going to get an inheritance. The older son would have gotten a larger inheritance. The younger son would have gotten a smaller one. But, but it seems that it was a pretty wealthy family, and so it wasn't anything to sneeze at. And by going to his father and saying, I want my share of the inheritance, he's like, man, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Can I just, can I just have my inheritance now? No earthly father would have agreed to this. And so there's a gasp in the crowd when Jesus says, so he divided his property between his sons. He gave his younger son his share and the older son his share. And not only does the younger son insult his father, he disgraces him. Then the next couple of days, he liquidates his share of the estate that took his father decades to build. Maybe it was multi-generational wealth here. And, and he sold it at a steep discount because you know when you got to sell a house quickly, right? You don't get a great price. And in a matter of days, he, he liquidates all of this property, and he goes to a far country. He doesn't even want to be near his father, and he parties it up. And for a while, things are good, and then the money runs out, and then the food runs out. There's a famine. And he's in need. And at this point, everybody listening to this story would have said, yeah, he got what he deserved. Because the fact that he had to go work for a farmer and feed pigs would have been disgraceful for a Jewish man because pigs were unclean. And he was paid so little, or he got such little food, that it seems like even the pigs were eating better than what he could have. Of course, this isn't the end of the story, but even the sinners and tax collectors would have said, yeah, he got what he deserved. Like the tax collector sitting in the corner saying, man, I've done some bad things in my life, but I ain't never done that, right? This is bad news. And then Jesus goes on. He says, but when he came to himself, some translations say he came to his senses. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. Comes to his senses and he says, Well, there, there is one option. And even that option's kind of iffy because he doesn't know if his dad's going to agree to it. But he says, I've got to try to go home and say, Dad, listen, I know I disgraced you. I know I'm no longer your son. He assumes that his name has not been spoken since the day he left, that he is dead to his family. So he says, make me one of your hired servants. It's his last option because he, he's got nothing else. And so he goes home and he begins to practice his speech on the way. Now again, the room is, is tense where Jesus is telling this story because of the first two stories, people got to know what's coming next. But while he was still a long way off, verse 20, his father saw him and felt anger and sent out a team of security guards and said, don't you dare come near this estate. You are dead to us and we never want to see you again. He walked away. Some of you are... Why are you laughing at me? That's not very kind of the preacher. The thing is, you assume that's what God is like. He's waiting with you with crossed arms and a scowl. You've got to clean yourself up. Like for some of you, this is the first step. Like, Well, at least maybe I'll start to go to church. Maybe when I do things and, and clean things up, then maybe God will accept me. 
You assume he's waiting in anger. That's not what Jesus says. He says, while he was still a long ways off, his, his father saw him and felt compassion. I mean, the very fact that his father was looking for him meant that day after day, he was waiting for this son to show up and hoping he would show up. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. This would have been embarrassing to the father. For a father, for a landowner to do this, to, to, to run through the village and embrace his son, which had disgraced him, would have been disgraceful to the father. But he runs and he embraces him and he kisses him. And the son starts his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father isn't going to listen to that. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And this is scandalous. It's scandalous in the story, but because of the first two stories, everybody in that room knew what Jesus was referring to with this third story. He says, oh, hold on, Jesus. Are you, do you mean to imply that the only thing we need to do for heaven to celebrate is to come home? I mean, certainly, certainly. Isn't there a list of things we need to do? I mean, let the guy come home maybe, but, but give him a few years to see if he really means it. I mean, he's not coming home because he loves you. He's coming home out of desperation. He's got no other options. This can't be what God's really like. Can it? But it is, and, and this is not the end of the story, but we've got to pause here because if you walked in this room believing that were you ever to come home to God, that he would be waiting with crossed arms and a scowl on his face in anger. You don't know what God is like. And Jesus shows us that God is not waiting for you with anger. He's waiting with you for you with open arms. He's waiting with a celebration, with a party. You're not coming in the back door. You're not kind of sneaking in there. You're not, well, let's give it a few days and see if this thing really sticks. The minute you show up, there is a party. And some of you need to come home to God. And that doesn't mean showing up in a building or going to a small group. That means understanding what the Son understood, that, that all of our options, everything we've tried to do to help ourselves doesn't work. And understanding that Jesus, when he died and he bled on the cross, he bled for you and he bled for me. And because of that, you are welcomed home. Not because you have come home, not because you have done anything right, not because you've done the list and, and you've showed that you were serious, but because Jesus died for you. God's waiting with open arms. And for them, that would have been the end of the story. All right, Jesus, I guess, I don't agree with you, Jesus, but, but I get it. I get the point, right? There's something lost, found celebration. Something lost, found celebration. A son was lost, is found celebration. We get it. Jesus throws in a detail that's missing in the first couple stories. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, right, doing what he was supposed to be doing. Any older children in this room? Right, I'm the youngest child. I'm the one that got away with everything my older siblings didn't get away with, right? Okay? So you can hate me if you're an older child, but 
older son's in the field doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? And as he came near, drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but, his father, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, I hate to tell you, Daddy, wasn't it Chuck E. Cheese the whole time, you know, putting quarters in there? Right? That's not what he wasted all his money on. You killed the fattened calf for him. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now again, because of the context why Jesus told this story. And Luke tells us that, that, that Jesus was welcoming sinners and tax collectors, people that the religious leaders had written off years ago. And the religious leaders were grumbling. I mean, if he really knew who they were, if he was really as religious, if he was really as spiritual as people say he is, if he was really a prophet, if he was really the Messiah, there's no way he would welcome them. Because they were grumbling, he told these stories. And we learn that what, what God celebrates is when lost people, when lost sinners come home. That's what delights God. That's what he celebrates. God celebrates when lost sinners come home. The thing is, the older brother does not celebrate. And there's details in here that, that sometimes we miss, but the, the, those listening to Jesus would, would not have missed these details. Do you notice what this older son asks for, what he's angry about. He's not just angry about the younger son. He's angry that he never even got a young goat to celebrate with his friends. A detail would have been hurt. And this, this son doesn't even care about his father. He's not longing for a relationship with his father. He just, he just wants to do his own thing. See, each in their own way, the younger son and the older son suffered from the same affliction. They saw their father as just an object, as just something to get something from. They didn't love their father just for the sake of being their father. They didn't want him just for him. And we read the conclusion of this story, and it's clear that the older son doesn't have a relationship with his father. In fact, his father does the same thing that he did for the younger son. The father goes out. He embarrasses himself. He begs the son to come in. No, no self-respecting father would have done that. No self-respecting father would have gone out and begged a disobedient son to do what he asked. But he goes out, and he makes the same offer for the older son that the younger son had. Come on in and celebrate. Different scenarios same problem. God celebrates when lost sinners come home to him. The issue here is that the older brother was not celebrating. And as Jesus tells this story, he realizes that you don't know what God is like. 
Remember, we can tell a lot about what somebody is like by what they celebrate, what delights them, and what grieves them. And so Jesus' message would have been clear. He just ends the story right there because his point had been made. Those who were there who were supposed to know about God, those who were there who had spent their lives studying the law, studying the prophets, who had, who had made it their business to, to be religious, to be spiritual, people that we may have applauded if we were there, they missed the point. It's possible to know a lot of facts about God. It's possible to spend a lot of time doing spiritual things and miss what he's really like. And what God is really like is he celebrates when lost sinners come home. Now, the question for us is, what will we celebrate? What does this mean for us? Well, for us, as a community of followers of Jesus, we exist to lead people into flourishing relationships with Jesus. We long to be the kind of place, and, and we are not perfect, and sometimes we mess this up, but we long to be the kind of place where when people come home to God, we celebrate, where that is what we desire. We desire to see that in people's lives. We, we love that it's happened in our lives. Next week, we've got, we've got a baptism coming up. We're going to be baptizing people in our services next week, and that's a public declaration that people make when they've come home to God. And, and when that happens, it is not a quiet thing. We celebrate, and there better be a lot of people here cheering. But that's not just what it's about. Celebrating when people, lost people come home to God is not just about when it happens, but it's desiring to see that happen in our community. And let me just, just be perfectly honest, and I know I'm overgeneralizing this. And I, so save your emails. I, I understand this is not every single person. This is not every single church. But followers of Jesus in our culture, i be honest, sometimes we get this way, way wrong. And because of somebody's lifestyle or because of somebody's particular sin that we don't like. This, this sin over here is okay, but these sins, no. We grumble when people come into our communities and our small groups when they live next door to us instead of desiring that they would come home just like we have. We all suffer from the same thing. We are all broken people in need of grace. And because Jesus offered that grace by dying on the cross for you and me and rising again from the dead three days later and defeating death, we can come home. And if you've heard this story before, chances are that you've been invited to find yourself in this character and this that character, and that's a really good thing. But remember, the point of this whole set of stories was Jesus looked out at these people and said, you don't really understand what God is like. So my question for you is this today. Where does this mess with your idea of God? Maybe for you, it's, it's, it's messing with you because the younger son didn't have to prove himself when he came home. Or when he did come home, it was mixed motives. Man, the guy was just hungry. Maybe there's people who would walk through this door and say, listen, you're welcome here, but you got to prove yourself first. Or you got to change this about yourself before you're allowed to be here. Maybe this messes with you in that you never dreamt that God could really be like that, that he could really welcome you home with open arms. 
Maybe you've never accepted his grace before. Friends, may we be the kind of community where as we pursue God, we never forget that he celebrates when lost people come home. That as we learn and as we engage and as we serve, we don't do it because we think it's going to get us something, but we do it because we are amazed that there is a God who celebrates when lost people come home, that gave his own son so that people could come home. May we never be the kind of place where somebody walks through that door that doesn't vote like us, look like us, believe like us, act like us, that we would give any kind of a cold shoulder. And i got to be honest. I know there are some people who could walk through that door and I would say, I don't know about this guy. Where does this pinch for you? Flourishing grace. May we be the kind of church, the kind of community that understands what God is really like, that he celebrates when lost people come home. And may that be what we are about and known as in our community. Let me pray. God, I am sorry for the times when I get this wrong, when I forget what you are really like. God, in the details of of, of church and music and speaking and, and, and what happens here, God, I am sorry for the times that we forget. I'm sorry for the times that we forget that what delights you is when lost Sinners, come home to you. May that be what we are about, God. May we share our stories of how we came home this week. God, bring us people in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, on the way to school, walking our kids to school. God, give us opportunities to share how you have welcomed us home so that people around us can know that there is a God who is waiting for them with open arms. And may we never be the kind of people that grumble, but may we be the kind of people that celebrate and throw a party because your grace is so amazing. God, we love you and we pray these things in your son's name. Let all the people say,